This presentation was from Yox Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Phil mentioned um, on Slack and via um, his uh, Twitter feed that he had to replace his talk about aviation with this one about speculative design due to some internal IP issues. I'm glad we've still been able to get you to talk, though, uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing about this. So please join me in welcoming Phil to the stage. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, first, my name is Phil Belectis. I am from San Francisco. Hopefully the translator can understand me. I will try to be very uh, clear. Um, yeah, so I was supposed to talk to you guys about uh, going digital in aviation, digital transformation, how we're applying design thinking at GE Aviation. Ran to some IP policy problems, and they said, no, you can't do it. So this is another talk that I do as well. I am also, I'm a design director at GE Aviation Digital. I'm also the founder of Speculative Futures, which is a meetup uh, in uh, San Francisco, Austin, Texas, and now New York. And I also founded a, a conference all on the topic of speculative design. Um, so, uh, I, you know, in America, we usually say, how's it going? Which doesn't really make sense. Where you guys here say, how, how, how are you going? I think that makes a lot more sense. How are you going? It's the end of the day. Um, so, let me tell you a little story. Who, who watches the, or who listens to the podcast 99% Invisible? Yeah, it's a great podcast, right? Uh, th there's a, an episode called 10,000 Years, and in the uh, heart of New Mexico in the desert, there is a nuclear waste dump uh, called the WIP, Waste Isolation uh, Pilots Plant. And this is one of the nation's only permanent underground repositories for nuclear waste. And here they are preparing the, the drums for the uh, transuranic waste for loading them into. And they, they, they have these uh, caverns that they've built, and they store them underground. And in 1990, the federal government, the US federal government, asked a group of geologists, linguists, uh, astrophysicists, architects, artists, and writers to come and um, create a marker system. This was the brief. They said, we're constructing a panel of eight to 10 specialists, experts, to develop the marker system for the site, which will remain active for 10,000 years. That was actually a lie. The site's actually going to be remain active as a nuclear, a, a dangerous place for 250,000 years, but that just seemed there was a little, a little bit absurd. So we said 10,000 years is a little bit more palatable, right? So create a marker system so that people know and generations to come that this is a dangerous and potentially fatal area to, to walk on. So we said, okay, that's great. That's easy, right? Our common uh, symbol language for, for death is the skull and crossbones. Actually, in the middle, around the Middle Ages, the skull and crossbones did not mean death. It was found in pictures of, of Christ at the feet of uh, the crucifix, and they were actually Adam's bones. It meant life, resurrection. It wasn't until around 1720 where a, pri a pirate named Calico Jack actually started signing the crossbones in the death ledger, and then it became death. So simple shift over time is that's not something we can really control. I said, okay, so what about pictograms? You know, we've used pictograms a lot over the ages. I said, okay, great. We, we have this trifold symbol, which means radioactivity. It's on the drum. You see human approach it. They absorb the trifold, and they walk away, and they fall over the die. That makes a lot of sense, right? If you're reading from top to bottom. If you're reading from bottom to top, dying man has some kind of crazy death symbol, comes up, puts him on this drum, walks away, and now it's the uh, you know, fountain of youth. 
And so the symbols and, and languages shift over time. So the, the architects came and said, OK, we got this covered. We're going to build these large, really dangerous, scary spires and spikes. And no one will want to go near this place until maybe 5,000 years from now, they build a casino and say, these are beautiful works of art. Let's start digging stuff up and see what, what all this is about. And then the philosophers came in. They said, OK, what has actually stood the test of time? Religious, religions, um, belief systems, folklore, culture. These span over centuries, and they are always absorbed. Generation after generation said, OK, well we'll, 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 we'll create a story around cats. We'll call them the ray cats. And they change colors. And every time a cat is around a radioactive material, it will change colors. And you will be afraid of cats from then on. Now, I'm not here to talk about cats, though. I know everyone loves cats, and I would love to talk to you about that. But I'm really here to talk to you about speculative design. Who here has heard of speculative design? OK, so I ask that question every time I do this talk, and it's always funny to see the, the ranges. It's usually about maybe 10 to 15%. And I, I, I asked someone else about this earlier in the week, and they said, oh, you know, con uh, conceptual design, prototyping. And while that is, and uh, if you ask Cameron Tompkin-wise, um, he would say it's just design. There's actually a medium called, called just design, because any design that does not, that isn't speculating about the future, which could be tomorrow, or 500 years, or 10,000 years, or 10 years on the road, it's not design if you're not speculating, correct? It's all design, right? Well, if you look up speculative design in, uh, on, online, you'll find speculative and critical design. You'll find a number of terms, actually. Critical design, design fiction, discursive design, adversarial design. What we're going to try and cover here, just for all intents and purposes, we're going to call it speculative, which is the way we like to position it is it's looking at the cultural and social impact of design for the future. What does the future hold for designers, our products that we design? What is our role in the future? And not just what is that thing and how does it exist, but how does it have an effect on society, our behaviors, our psychology? How does it change us and move us? This is how I like to position speculative design. It's a way, a vehicle to manifest possibilities. Prepare us for the inconvenient challenges, the futures that we may want, opportunities, and also the challenge, the ethical challenge, and the, and the futures we might not want, so that we can design a desirable path today into the future that we want tomorrow. So we teach a lot of workshops in San Francisco, um, and the first thing that we always talk about is the futures code. You might have seen this before. And this is basically, this is, uh, this is reality. You can't predict the future. That's sort of the hard problem around design futurism and strategic foresight is there are some signals, we call them signals, trends that, we can, um, that are imminent, you know, such as the nuclear waste that will you know, be lethal in some time. But we can have many futures, right? It's a cone of possibilities. Straight through the center is the probable. The probability that what is likely to happen, things we know we can count on. We know that the uh, charged rhetoric between the United States and North Korea is going to continue. It's been continuing for many years. That's the probable. The plausible, what could happen? Well, a lot of things could happen. We could start to, the rhetoric could increase and, and be a little bit more inflamed. And what's possible is we could have a nuclear war on our hands. These are the cone of possibilities and cones of futures. How does design play a role in that? And how does it have impact? What do we want to design for, though? 
These, this is the area where we sort of look at innovation, something we can count on, a technology we can count on, and then how do we innovate around that so that we can kind of push the boundaries a little bit. That's the preferable future. That's where we want to be. It's so closer to the utopia, not the dystopia like Blade Runner. Then you have these wild cards, which are low probability events that if they happen, such as potentially a nuclear war, which I'm not very happy about going home and having to deal with this, um, is if they happen, they would have high impact. A nuclear war and fallout in San Francisco would have a high impact on me. Um, and these can also be, on the other side, very innovative events, innovative ideas. And this is the cone of possibility. So this talk is going to be in two parts. I'm going to show you a bunch of projects that I really love in, this, in the realm of speculative design. They're everything from science fiction to critical design to conceptual design. And then, about, and then I'm going to tell you about a few frameworks that we teach, basic frameworks about how do you look into the future and figure out what is it that we need to prepare for. So critical design was actually, speculative and critical design was actually coined by Dunn and Raby in the, in the 90s in uh, Anthony Dunn's book, uh, Hertzian Tales. And this is a project that they did. They are professors. Well, they were at the Royal College of Art in London. They are now at Parsons in New York. And this is a, this is a project they did called Foragers. So in the next 40 years, we're going to have to create, this, this is according to the UN, 70% more food for the population. Can you imagine what 70% more food is? It's not just food. It's water. It's food for the animals, and the animals, and the gases, and everything else that we have to create over the next 40 years. Now, that seems like a long time, but that's a lot. So the notion is, is that governments will not, and industry will not be able to solve this problem very quickly. So societies will be forced to kind of create their own solutions, their own designs and ideas to, to cope with this. What would that look like? What subcultures would be born? What would those products look like? Would they emulate? So what if we could harness the chemical biology of animals, the way they are able to extract nutrients and vitamins from the soil, from the water, and create a product like that so that we could roam the land as foragers, you know, creating and, and extracting our own nutrients, just like the animals do? What would those first prototypes look like? And not just what does, that I, what, what does the product look like, but what are those cultures like? Why have we come here? And how do we avert from... from from being in this, uh, this type of situation. Object Solutions is an agency that did a exhibit at MIT. This is called Love Optimized. So imagine this is your first date. This one's called uh, Neuraline. Uh, both of you are hooked up to these wires and electrodes, and the system is kind of pulsating between both of you to determine your romantic potential, syncing your nervous systems. This is your first date. You're compatible. You have compatible nervous systems. This project was called Intimate Utility Meter. And so imagine this. Smart homes, right? Everyone's going to have a smart home at some point. What if all of your utilities were controlled by a love meter? And your relationship was also governed by that love meter. As the, your romantic relationship decreases, so do your utilities. There's another project uh, where there's a, a drone that follows you around and shines a spotlight on your wedding ring to <laughs> show your, your, the cinematic importance of your, your bond and relationship, just to remind you that every day you've got a little drone following you. Um, Biophilia, this is a, a project by Veronica Ranner. Now, she's really interested in silk. She's been able to, she's working at, she's a PhD candidate at the Royal College of Art now. 
She's working with some scientists on understanding how silk can be a kind of a lattice or a scaffolding to, um, to create organs and to actually uh, harness organs. So this is a womb, artificial womb. And there is a really great podcast called Flash Forward if you're interested in the speculative design storytelling. Uh, and the artificial womb is one, uh, one that they talk about where they kind of, they tell a story, a narrative about what it's like in the future and they go and interview a bunch of scientists and they, they figure out like, could this really happen? What would this be like? But so, so about 10% of uh, births worldwide are premature. And it's only when the child actually goes through um, uh, his birth that they actually get the, the gut, the bacteria that actually helps them survive. Um, and if you could do that outside, so not just, again, not just the thing. Here is a, a pod where you can actually birth a child externally through the silk structure. What does that do about the, due to the relationship between the parents and the child? Critical design has meant to sort of start conversations, and there's a, there's a lot of debate around this as a, a viable category of design because is it really design? Is this something that we can create today? But what's important is the conversation it creates around, if we have the technology today, should we do it? If we see something start pointed in that path, such as you know, AI thinking for itself, potentially giving it too much power, should we allow it? Joseph Popper is also a graduate of RCA. He did a project called One Way Ticket, where he built this entire capsule and, and thought about what would it be like to send a person into space one way. And a lot of the project that he talks about is really about the kind of human factors and the ergonomics, but what about the behavioral aspects and the psychology that you'd have to face? Not too different from some projects that we're talking about today that are actually gonna become realities, such as Mars One. Elon Musk even said, to get on this uh, capsule and go to Mars, you have to be prepared to die. You have to be prepared to go to this planet and live out the rest of your life. Great. That's a lot to prepare for, and we need to speculate around all of the challenges and opportunities that will exist around that time as well. So once we get there, what else could we do? What else would we want? What becomes luxury? What becomes need? Carlos Melian Gindel did a project called Martian Wine, where he actually looked at, well, could we grow wine on Mars? So you know we can actually grow potatoes in bar, on Mars, just like in the movie The Martian, right? That's an actual thing. Well, he did a very similar experiment um, where he actually looked at Martian soil and emulated it. And through a process called carbonic maceration, you can grow grapes. You actually, uh, if you put a lot of pressure on a grape in a container and expose it to a lot of carbon dioxide, it'll ferment from the inside out. So he, he emulated that. By the way, did you know that the Martian atmosphere is only, uh, was it 0.3% oxygen, which is really crazy, that's why we're going, I don't even know why we're going there. Um, <laughs> But if we get there, we can make wine, which is really awesome. Uh, and these are, the, these are the, va the vases that he was actually able to emulate from the Martian soil. Uh, very recently, Christine Liu did a project called Galactic Every Day. Again, looking at what are the other things we're not thinking about when we actually get to Mars. So this is a shower suit where you're in a sort of a space suit, and then you plug water into it, and you shower inside of the suit. What if you have to do that? And then there's the other part of it, which is how do you dry yourself, which is a similar suit, but it's a big blow dryer, and you hook up air tubes to it. Um, the overlooked everyday aspects of future life in space. These are all things we need to consider if we're going to send people up there to survive and colonize that planet. 
Uh, one of my favorite designers is Aggie Haynes. She did a project called Transfiguration. So she's really, she's really interested in, in body and how you manipulate the body. So today we can manipulate the body, mostly for vanity. But what if we, had, if we were forced to, or we could, manipulate children? This child here has uh, extra skin on its head to live in a world increased and heightened climate change. The skin, the extra folds, actually allow you to release heat. It's like a heat sink in a computer. The more skin there is, more surface area, and it cools them down. They can work longer hours if they need to in that world. Alexander Daisy Ginsburg did a project called Synthetic Kingdom. On the left, this is a glass made of keratin. Keratin is the protein in your hair and your skin and your nails that give it strength. On the right, um, this is a pollution-sensing lung tumor, tumor made, a, made of a pathology of a, a heavy smoker. So where is the, how do we classify things between natu natural and unnatural? Classify them in, um, where, would we, where would we sell them? Should we do this? If this glass is made out of the keratin of like a relative or a dead relative, is that something that would be okay and accepted socially? Again, questions around, here's technology that exists today. We can do this, and should we? This is a project called eChromai, also by Alexander Davis. As designers, we worked with the team to explore eChromai's potential as they were developing it in the lab. And together, we imagined the timeline proposing ways that living color could evolve over the next century. These scenarios, some of which are shown in this film, explore the different agendas that could shape eChromai's use and in turn our everyday lives. One of the first real applications for this technology may arrive quite soon. A cheap disposable biosensor for testing groundwater contaminated by arsenic. Bacteria could also be used to produce natural colorings and dyes. By 2015, there may be a profession of people who hunt for new pigments in the genes responsible, bringing them back for use in the food and textile industry. By 2039, you can go to the supermarket and buy the simple probiotic yogurt for cheap personalized disease monitoring. The yogurt drink contains E. bacteria, which establish a colony in your gut. They monitor for chemical signals that indicate the presence of a wide range of diseases. If they detect a disease, they start generating the corresponding colored pigment, producing an easily visible output to prompt you to seek your doctor. So E. is an actual project. She worked with uh, scientists at the Cambridge University. So she is actually able to program bacteria to uh, change color due to different contexts. Um, but, you know, everything, everything that we're talking about in speculative design is really meant to be, that's in the future, right? And when we do these workshops, um, we do this, we, we conceptualize in a lab, and the hard part is you leave it in the lab. It's like, oh, that's the future, it's scary, or it's awesome, and then you go back to your everyday work. This work can create an agenda. You can create agenda today. If you care about the potential implications of a technology or an event or anything, you have to bring it back to today and activate it today to make sure that it matters to you, to your company, and you can actually create that future and set that path towards that agenda. In Dubai, which is a very forward-thinking, forward future-forward uh, city, built in the middle of the desert, built on the oil money, um, they really were thinking ahead of time because they knew the oil would run out at some point. So right now it's, one of the, it's a, a major international and business hub. And they have a project uh, that Tellart did called the Museum of the Future. It was called the Museum of the Future Government Services, but it's been going on for a few years now. I think it started maybe two, 2014. And at first it was an annual exhibit. 
Um, it's turned into a permanent installation called the Museum of the Future. And each year, it's a different theme. So this was government services, I think, in 2015. And now it's on climate change. And this was one of the uh, entrances where you would walk down a street, and they would expose different technologies that would be all sensing you, biometrics, drones, uh, construction drones. Um, and it's meant to incite public opinion around services that the government and the people would need of Dubai and to figure out their, their opinions on it. Would we accept something like this? What did we miss? Is this scary? This is something we don't want as a society. This is an autonomous prototyping lab. So if you have an autonomous car and you don't have to drive, what are the other uses that we could have uh, that would, we would need? So there's a, a workout car and a, a business meeting car. And they would prototype different types of concepts. Brain augmentation, exoskeletons. This is from this year's exhibit called the Food Bot, where these uh, robots are harvesting food just at the right time, particularly based on people's personal uh, health needs. And so we'd create, uh, you'd go in and scan yourself, and we'd create a, a food block for you, specifically designed for you. This is an actual project that they built. CityKit self-building building. This actual, this robotic machine will go out and actually extract resources from. Uh, the land around it, from the sand, from the soil, the water, and start to build out buildings and, and housing. Facial recognition. This was actually from 2015. This one's called Mood View. Have you ever wondered what people really think about you? Have you ever had trouble convincing people of your ideas? Well, despair no more. Introducing Mood View, the most advanced social intelligence product on the market. Moodview's sensitive facial micro-expression recognition reveals people's subconscious feelings and attitudes in real time. The Moodview social coach then draws from a data bank of over 450 trillion social interactions to suggest the best way to respond. Thanks to Moodview, you can read people like an open book and be sure that you say the right thing at the right time every time. Moodview. See how people really feel. Moodview will not be held responsible for an overproliferation of friends or increased workloads due to newfound business opportunities. Moodview's microexpression data bank brought to you by the UAE Hypermind. So I contacted the strategy director for, um, for this project. His name is Andrew Haysager. And I said, this is awesome. What did the community think about this design fiction product? And he said, don't call it design fiction. These prototypes are based on real probable drivers real trends. They work with researchers, scientists to figure out what is the plausible future? What could happen? What are the products that could be designed? Um, rigorous research and study. This is not just a concept. The great thing about speculative design is if you are kind of in that plausible zone, it's sort of like a wormhole, right? You can speculate on how things could be, and you could pull that idea into the, into the present and actually start creating that. There's a lot of startup ideas in, in this uh, presentation if you want to grab any of them. Um, the uh, government of the UK also specifically sought out speculative design as a process and method to understand, again, public opinion on uh, the future of an aging population. What will we need 30 years from now as, an, as the aging population then as far as government services? So this is really great. So speculative design works really well for um, industries where a product needs to take a lot of time to kind of unroll and unfold because you have to look out 10 years. So in aviation, we build engines, jet engines. That's what, what GE Aviation is known for. It takes about 10 years for an engine to roll off the line. Everything we're talking about here is risk aversion. That's what we do with engines as well. We have to know every single possibility. 
we have these test cells that are out in, out in, the, um, in, the, in the boonies, and we actually throw like chickens and all kinds of different objects for foreign object damage to see what could it possibly ingest and what will it do to the engine. We have to be prepared for every single thing. Now, design, you know, we, don't, we, we can't predict the future. We can't constantly think about every single problem, but there are, again, events that could be imminent that we should probably design for. What's the behavioral impact? How's it going to change us? Uh, the study was they went to three different cities and they showed a number of pictures of the future. On the top left is uh, a private city where there's a lot of private economies such as Facebook run uh, uh, autonomous car pumps. Um, there's a lot of advertising that's private. On the right, it's more government um, centric. So free services and just again, it's insight opinion about what would you trust? Would you take the Facebook autonomous car or would you take the city bus? And of course, the citizens were concerned about the Facebook car because they would think that the private company would be trying to capitalize on them more, but they, would, they, uh, they wouldn't trust it as much. On the left, you can, if you can make it out, it says um, Green and Sons uh, robot, robot Repair. And uh, yeah, so just trying to understand uh, what, it's, what, what citizens might need or what they might not need or what they might be afraid of. Uh, this is sort of a, a futures uh, wheel around the direct implications of lifestyle and culture and the indirect implication. I'll show you the futures wheel later, which is a framework that we use to understand how, what are the implications on society. Simone Rebidengo, it works for Frog, I think, out in Singapore or Shanghai. I can't remember. Uh, he speculates around smart objects. So we've got lots of smart stuff, right? We've got the smart thermostat, the smartphone, the smart home. What happens when these smart objects break down? So I've cut out the beginning of this movie, but it starts off with a gentleman sleeping and his smart coffee machine breaks down. It starts making coffee at three in the morning and he's like, oh, okay, I'm gonna take this to the shop. Where do you take it to? Hello. 这些是别人送进来的object。各个号称自己是很聪明的，但其实傻得很。他们主人根本没有时间，所以呢，请我来训练他们。别人教小孩训练动物，我训练object。比如说这台扫地机器人，大家觉得它其实蛮傻的，其
a lot of people are talking about AI taking over our jobs and uh, displacing lots of job opportunities, but there's going to be a person who trains the AI, right? There's going to be a business model associated with that. There's the person that supports it and builds it and trains it. So I think there's actually a lot of opportunity around AI kind of coming in and taking our jobs. I didn't include this one video, but Nutella did a campaign recently where they let an AI design their, their labels, and they did 7,000 jars of Nutella. The only thing that stayed static was the, uh, the, the logo, the mark, and then they had all these different colors, each one completely unique. They sold off the shelves in uh, a couple months. Now, you could be fearful as a graphic designer that AI would one day take your job, or you could say you know, some of the menial, more mundane tasks, data analysis, those kind of generative designs, we're going to offload into AI. So what do we have to consider when we're designing for the future? <clears throat> so I'll talk about a couple of different frame, frameworks that, uh, that we teach. One is called retrocasting. Uh, this term, I haven't quite uh, claimed it myself, but it's also called backcasting. But I call it retrocasting because you actually have to look to understand the future. You have to understand the past, right? How did we adapt technology? How did we behave? And how did that work out? And so how, do, how might it work out in the future, right? So I'm going to use some trite examples here. So just be prepared. In 1996, that was 20 years ago-ish. That's when Google first was launched. 2007, 10 years ago, only 10 years ago, that's the first time we had a smartphone. 2009, sharing economy, VR, AR. Within that time, given Moore's Law, does anyone know what Moore's Law is? Yeah? Okay, so, you know, as, you know, transistors get faster, we can actually build um, faster computers, technology. If you apply that exponential curve of how Moore's Law works, also how we change as a culture and shift over time, it also sort of lines up at the same time as well. And, how, and this is very, very technology-centric, but it, we can also look at how things have changed very, very rapidly, and they continue to exponentially change very rapidly. So that was the next, last 20 years. In that 20-year time frame, does anyone remember the last time they were able to remember more than 10 phone numbers right off the top of their head? Who could do that today? Steve, really? Let's hear it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, I mean, so again, cognitive load gets offloaded to the technology. And, you know, some, some might have been afraid of that in, in the beginning, but that's kind of a good thing, sort of, until your phone breaks down. So we can start to speculate that that type of, sh of, of change, shift in, in technology and how we behave, will happen within the next 10 years. If you're interested in futurist thinking and, and at speculative futures, we really try to, we incorporate everything. We have wide aperture, science fiction, design futurism, strategic foresight. There's a book called Think Like a Futurist, and they, they break down a framework where they look at um, trends. These are the things that you look at, so resources. If you're looking into the future, what are the resources going to be like? The technology associated with that enable those resources to do new things. The uh, demographics, the people that are using the technology, how it's governed, and so these things move sort of slow compared to the trends and signals that pop up from all these working together. So we can start to figure out you know, what the next 10 years or so could look like. We try not to go past 10 years when we do these workshops because it gets kind of fuzzy and you really don't, don't know. So a common framework, it's called backcasting, and a lot of large companies do this. Um, we do this a lot with airlines where we, we're looking out two years, two or three years in the future. We, we do a three-day workshop, problem frame the first day, synthesize that data, and then we look at scoping that, that project out for two years. So basically, you figure out what that solution is. Where do you want to go? What's your north star? 
What's the goal? Put that out into the future. But not just that. Again, everything I've been talking about is understanding the ecosystem around it. What does that future look like? You have to put yourself there to understand, you know, again, some things are imminent, right? Populations will increase. Traffic in the skies will increase. Um, behaviors will change and, and be a little bit different. So we have to incorporate all of that into understanding what is that solution going to really feel and look like, and how does it need to adapt to that world in that point? And then we backcast and we say, what needs to be built infrastructurally, um, resource-wise, into the present? And that could be in um, you know, two, four years, uh, four-year phases. And you can apply the futures cone here as well and say, these are different futures that we want. And here are all the different um, uh, items that are necessary to make that future a reality. Now again, you, as you start to move into the future, things change and shift. And you can start to shift along the futures cone as well, but always kind of adapting towards one of these North Stars uh, as, you, um, as you perceive it. So a lot of uh, the questions that we get when we talk about this stuff is, uh, really, so uh, this is great. That's, really con that's, that's awesome. That's the future I want. How do I take it back to my company and convince my CEO that we need to care about environmental impact? or about how we're going to change society. And I haven't quite <laughs> figured out a really solid answer to that, but it's just like any other transformation or culture change within your company. You really want to advocate and align with your company's vision. So determine what's the impact that you care about. If you care enough about it, align it with your company's vision and try and match those so that they care about it as well. Is there a market that you want to penetrate? Uh, do, they want to do they want to shift their, their focus into actually being an environmentally friendly company? Are they developing a new technology that could potentially be harmful or ethically challenged to society? Where are their sensitivities? And once you align with all that, you can start to push that forward. But you really need champions. You need advocates. So what we're doing with the meetup group is we're sort of doing a grassroots campaign, and we're trying to train designers. Oh, well, not just designers, but product managers, engineers, anyone around these kind of frameworks. And that's the grassroots. Then they, it's up to them to go back to the company, convince their leadership to also pull that forward. And uh, if you're successful, you can you know, start to shift that agenda, that path for your company. Again, implications. So there's a hidden impact between everything that we design put in the world. There's an influence, and it's reciprocal. And there's an ecosystem that exists where we put that product into the future. So we have to, again, put yourself there. Today looked very different than 10 years ago, right? Completely different. But we don't realize now because we're in it. The future is going to look very different. Five years from now, it's going to look very different. Not extremely different, but it's going to be. The mobile phone, they're saying, is going to not exist. It'll be augmented reality. We're going to have glasses or some kind of wearable, or maybe it'll be in the contacts. Sony has submitted a patent for a contact lens that actually has video on it. Have you ever seen Black Mirror? There's a really great, creepy episode around the video recording and the contact lenses. And then what, is the, what are the implications? What will, how will that impact society? More importantly, how is our role going to change? I have a feeling we're going to be very different designers in 10 years from now. We'll, we'll still be you know, tactical and be able to do interaction design, but it's going to be very different. And then we can use these, these frameworks to also decide where do we want to show up in the future? How do we start preparing and backcasting that path for us as well? So consider the bicycle. So pretty simple, last, what, 200 years? Pretty, pretty much the same thing, two wheels, a, uh, a seat. Direct implications, we need infrastructure for it. You need safety. Indirect implications is parking, maybe. 
Uh, this is Copenhagen, supposedly the, the, the friendliest bike city in the world. So again, ecosystems, there's a lot of the ecosystem, the environment that influence that vehicle, and the vehicle can influence it. So let's move into something a little bit more, a uh, newer technology in transportation, the autonomous car. So again, direct implications, we need roads, special roads, we need to think about safety. This is the futures wheel. This is a very common framework for futures design. Create the event in the center, direct implication and indirect implication. So direct implication, we need roads. What's the indirect implication on society, on how we behave, how we use it, how we communicate, how we transport, transport. with Hyperloop coming around? How do you think that's gonna change our economies between cities? Religion is a really interesting one to look at, because how does, because religion really pushes economies also in the world, as well as war. But how does that change it? With people being able to transport themselves maybe cheaply um, in a shorter amount of time. So I was involved in a workshop. I didn't facilitate it, but I was part of it called, uh, it was uh, put on by the Near Future, Near Future Labs on creating a quick start guide for an autonomous car. So when you get an autonomous car, when it's a little bit more ubiquitous, there's gonna be a guide, right? How do you get started? And what does that guide look like? So this is one of the pages, this is the child safe mode. So if you've left your child in the car, what do you do? If you get lost, what do you do? How do you clean it? And all of this has to be very simple. And what that experiment did was allow us to really think about what are all those indirect implications? What are all the things we need to think about when we're designing this thing? A year ago, a map, uh, an agency in Japan, or they worked with a Japanese studio called Mori to create a speculative video on uh, Thomas Cars for Honda. This is one of their pieces. Since the beginning of human history, mankind has continually sought to travel beyond its limits, starting in Africa and spreading all over the globe. Inspired by this tenacity, we decided to retrace one of the longest routes of human migration using vehicles with autonomous car technology. Think about the possibilities of autonomous car technology. It's a key innovation for the automotive industry, but this exciting technology is currently used to address practical issues like congestion, parking and safety. What we are missing is the dream. What if this technology was used to further human enjoyment and exploration? What kind of autonomous vehicle would this make possible? The next leg of the journey takes us from Karachi to Shenzhen, and this vehicle is called the Mountain Climber. The vehicle itself is very robust, and it has a steel tube with glass at either end, the tube protecting its occupants, but the glass windows either end providing an amazing view. Most of the journey is traversing the Himalayas, where rockfalls are quite frequent. One special feature of this vehicle, inspired by Honda's Asimo technology, are four robotic legs that enable it to lift itself and walk over any rockfalls, and also a robotic arm so that it can fix the road as it passes through the landscape. So we've actually been doing this type of design for a while. In, Apple, in 1987, Apple created this, the Apple Knowledge Navigator. Does this look familiar to you? This is 1987. It's a touchscreen tablet device with uh, teleconferencing. You touched it, and you could actually talk to other people. At that time, the internet wasn't even ubiquitous. They speculated, understand the technology today, and figured out you know, what would this look like. And there's a whole video online uh, where, it's a, where a professor is uh, using this and, and talking to another professor, professor across the world and, and collaborating on something. 
So again, this is my group. Uh, we are in three cities right now. We have over a thousand members, only been alive for about two years, all kind of created out of my fascination for spectral design. We did a conference this year. We're going to do it again next year, all around this topic. Um, we do workshops. Uh, this is the future of disease. And our format right now is where we invite subject matter experts. So this had 30 designers, six subject matter experts in IT, data science, pharmacology, biotechnology, uh, wearables, and they all speculate on different versions of disease. Um, this team created a, a, a project called Genomi, looking at plant genomics, biosensing, machine learning, and pushed that out into the future and, and created this uh, plant that would understand your health needs and create fruit. This is a very fruit, the medicine, medicinal fruit. So if you're diabetic, you would have a fruit with, uh, with insulin in it, just the right amount of insulin. Again, personal behavior. Um, this one was called Heal. They looked at, these are the signals they looked at, biohacking, uh, machine learning, 3D printing, and created a wearable sleeve where each of these pods could be 3D printed at home, and each one would be, again, personalized with medicine suited to your uh, personal health needs. Um, we also do a little bit of consulting. This is a, uh, we work with an architecture group called Smith Group. We just advise them on how to run a speculative workshop. This is uh, the future of healthcare. So what if the, uh, the clinic was completely run by AI? So this is really around AI in the healthcare clinic. This is a personal on-demand service where you just go in, you sit down in a chair, and it basically analyzes you, and it's basically the, the room uh, tricorder. Sorry, I'm just kind of flying through this. We're kind of short on time. Uh, Shihan Zhang, she's a, she is a graduate of California College of, College of the Arts. This is her project called Personal Carbon Economy, where she was looking at what if we could actually harness the carbon dioxide that we're producing and actually create an economy out of it, monetize it, market it. And you know, these are some of the projects came up with. This is an algae um, toga of sorts, where it actually, she actually built this. That's actual algae in there. Uh, you're actually creating carbon dioxide, and you can use that to get credits through banks, carbon banks. If you're a hipster, you could use the uh, Mr. Beard. Moss, uh, carbon dioxide creator. She had a number of projects. You should check this out online. Methane Lady, which is just harnessing the methane from cows. And um, uh, yeah, using that and, and being able to trade it for credits, for actual currency. I'm going to skip the video because we're a little short on time. The World Carbon Bank connects its... Um, but if you're interested in this work, here are some three, here are three books. Landscape Futures, Speculative, Future, Speculative Everything is the seminal book by uh, Anthony Don Fiona Raby. A lot of great examples, a lot of the ones I, I showed you. And Reframe is not a speculative book. But if you don't believe me, if you think this is nonsense and science fiction and too conceptual and not necessary in your design practice today, it's at least a method of synthesis, right? It's at least uh, an awareness, a responsibility that we can actually be uh, a little bit more cognizant of when we're actually designing our products for, for the rest of the world and for our generations to come. Reframe is just an idea. Of, it's how you reframe uh, different, uh, a different way of looking at a problem. So if you want to recontextualize something, you want to redesign a toothbrush, you can, re you can reframe it as an object. So if it's not this thing you hold in your mouth, it's a plant, you've reframed it as an object. And if you apply that type of synthesis method to this futures design, you come up with some really innovative, really wild ideas. If you like doing, um, so these are two card games that have a number of prompts, the thing from the future, and near future labs design fiction toolkit, very similar, but they're prompts. If you just want to do some quick brainstorming and iteration, uh, this is a nice game you can play with your team. <sighs> so I have one last video, because I love videos, obviously. And again, if you don't believe me, here's one last reason 
to care about speculative design, designing for the future, and preparing for a better tomorrow. the rest of that online. It's very cute, I promise you. Okay, we gotta go. Thank you very much, appreciate it. Thanks, Will. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.